this teaching comes in the form of a principle that's stated by means of metaphor, a principle which offers us wisdom about when and, uh, more importantly in this context, when not to communicate the truth of God. Isn't that an interesting thought? We'll begin reading in Matthew 7, verse 1, and we'll read through verse 6. We will get some of the context in our minds, and then we'll, as always, pray. Our Lord Jesus says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged, and the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And so we saw last week that this deals with situation in which a brother or sister in the Lord has some kind of moral failure that you seek to correct. And Jesus is not saying not to correct it. He is saying to correct it. He wants you to remove the speck from your brother's eye, but he doesn't want you to do it in a hypocritical fashion in the larger context like so many of the Pharisees and the scribes were doing in their legalistic fashion. No, he wants you, all of us to do it with humility, recognizing that we too are sinners and that we have a tendency to find the specks in others while we miss the big things in our own lives. And he says, no, take a good look at yourself first, and then you can see clearly with humility, with dependence on the Lord, right, to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And it's in this context that he says in verse 6, do not give what is holy to the dogs, and nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Now, at first, that doesn't seem like it has anything whatsoever to do with what he's just said. But I think it does when you stop to think about it. And that's what we're going to try to do this morning. We're going to try to stop to think about it to see if we can't figure out what Jesus really meant when he said this. A somewhat enigmatic statement, but one which I think was designed to force his disciples to stop and think. Jesus often said uh, things that at first glance seem kind of obscure, but when you stop to think about it, it makes perfect sense. But he said it in a way that forced you to do that, to think. And so that's what we're going to try to do this morning. We're going to try to think about this. Let's go to the Lord for help. Holy Father, we come to you, as always, in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we thank you that you have saved us. We thank you that you've created this world, and that though this world has fallen, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior. And we thank you so much that those of us in this room who know you through our Savior, Jesus Christ, we've experienced your grace. We've experienced the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. And we ask that you would continue that work now by filling us with your spirit and with understanding because we do want to understand your words to us. We want to understand what you want us to learn from, from this text today. So please help us to that end, I pray. And for the many who could not be here today due to weather or sickness, we pray that you'd heal those who are sick and bring them back to us soon. And for those who are at home because of the weather, uh, we pray that they'd be able to tune in and listen in and that you just keep them safe as well. 
We ask all these things in our Savior's name. Amen. By way of introducing the subject of our passage, I'd like to share with you a letter that was once written by Dorothy Sayers. And many of you may know her if you like to read mystery novels. Back in the early part of the 20th century, she was rather famous. She wasn't quite Agatha Christie level famous, but she was rather famous for writing the Lord Peter Whimsey mysteries, and she wrote some Christian things as well. She was known as a Christian. Uh, and she was once asked by an agnostic scientist to write in response to his scientific organization. And he requested that she give her reasons for believing in the Christian faith. And her, her response might surprise you, might even shock you a little bit. But here, here was her letter in response, and I'm going to read the whole thing. It's not that long. She wrote this. Why do you want a letter from me? Why don't you take the trouble to find out for yourselves what Christianity is? You take time to learn technical terms about electricity. Why don't you do as much for theology? Why do you never read the great writings on the subject, but take your information from the secular so-called experts, she has in quotes, who have picked it up as inaccurately as you have? Why don't you learn the facts in this field as honestly as your own field? Why do you accept mildewed old heresies as the language of the church when any handbook on church history will tell you where they came from? Why do you balk at the doctrine of the Trinity, God, the three-in-one, yet meekly acquiesce when Einstein tells you that E equals MC squared? What makes you suppose that the expression, God ordains, is narrow and bigoted, while your own expression, science demands, is taken as an objective statement of fact? You would be ashamed to know as much about an internal combustion as you know about the Christian beliefs. I admit, you can practice Christianity without knowing much theology, just as you can drive a car without knowing much about internal combustion. But when something breaks down in the car, you go humbly to the man who understands the works. Whereas if something goes wrong with religion, you merely throw the works away and tell the theologian that he's a liar. Why do you want a letter from me telling you about God? You will never bother to check it out or find out whether I'm giving you personal opinions or Christian doctrines. Don't bother. Go away and do some work and let me get on with mine. That's a pretty strong letter. Now, at first, it may seem to be very unloving. After all, if we love others, even our enemies, as our Lord Jesus teaches us to do, won't we want to share the gospel with them at any opportunity that we can find? Did Dorothy Sayers do the wrong thing? when she wrote that letter. Well, perhaps Dorothy did do the wrong thing, but before we're too quick to judge her, remembering last week's sermon, we must first consider the principle that Jesus teaches in the passage before this morning when he solemnly says in Matthew 7, 6, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Now, here our Lord Jesus teaches a principle about when not to share the truth. 
And in order to grasp what he's saying, we're going to explore, first of all, the meaning of the metaphors that Jesus uses to state the principle, and you should have this outline in your bulletin. And then also the application of the principle to professing believers. And then lastly, the application of the principle to unbelievers. After all, both professing believers and unbelievers are in, are in view in the larger context of our passage. So first of all, we're going to look at the meaning of the metaphors that Jesus uses to state this principle. Uh, this saying seems a rather abrupt change, as I pointed out earlier, at least at first glance, an abrupt change in subject matter. After all, Jesus has, sh has shifted from speaking about helping a brother who has a speck in his eye to speaking about those he describes as dogs and pigs. These seem rather strong terms to use about a brother, don't they? Can this really be what Jesus means then? Well, in order to begin to understand what he means, it's important first to remember that both wild dogs and pigs were considered unclean by first century Jews in Palestine. Uh, the ESV study Bible notes accurately state that in the ancient world, dogs lived in squalor and scavenged the streets for food. Jews considered them unclean and used the term to describe those apart from or enemies of Israel's covenant community. And there's some Old Testament examples that they list that we won't get into. Pigs were rejected by Jews, probably because they too were scavenging animals, and they were also unclean under Old Testament law. So Jesus picks dogs and pigs to describe the people that you don't cast pearls before. Which in the context, he also, he, he also calls that what is holy. So he, he describes these dogs and pigs as having a vicious reaction to those who seek to share with them what is holy. Which he, as I said, metaphorically pictures as extremely valuable pearls. Now, in order to get a handle on what's going on here, I've given you in your notes a statement about chiastic structure, right? The chiastic structure of Matthew 7, 6, and I've given you a statement what, about what chiasm is because what we're dealing with here is a literary form known as a chiasm, and you see this in the Old and New Testaments. It's a feature, really, of Hebrew poetry, that uh, uses parallelism. They use parallel lines. One of the fascinating things about Hebrew poetry is it doesn't rely on rhyme, although occasionally there is rhyme, or meter. Uh, instead, it's balanced lines, parallel lines that either contrast things or build. Um, and sometimes, when they got particularly artistic, they would use what we call a chiastic structure. And it's because if you lay it out in a certain way, it looks like an X, which is the letter key in Greek. And so that's where they get the name chiastic structure. Um, it is an arrangement of the parallel members of a verse or literary unit to form an A, B, B, A arrangement where the first line corresponds to the fourth and the second to the third. It's also called inverted or introverted parallelism because it's a feature of parallel lines in Hebrew poetry, as I've said. A classic example of this, and it shows you the way it builds, is in Romans 10, 9, and 10 that I've given you as one example of a famous one in the New Testament. Paul, being a Jew, was quite familiar with Hebrew poetry and structured this, 
statement in a poetic fashion, and it, that's why so many people memorize it. It's pretty easy to memorize. Notice he says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, that's A, and then moves to B, and believe in your heart, so his confession in their mouth is A, believe in your heart is B, that God has raised him from the dead. And then he has this, for what, for him is central here, you will be saved. There's a C in here. And then goes back to B, for with the heart, reflecting what he said before, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made into salvation. Notice how he inverts things. At the beginning and the end, there's confession. In between, in the two B lines, is believing in your heart. And then right in the middle is what it's all about. You will be saved. Well, that's a chiastic structure that's a little bit, some of you can get bigger, D's and E's and things like that. But uh, you can see the same kind of thing in a basic way happen in Matthew 7, 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs, that's A. Nor cast your pearls before swine, that's B. Lest they trample them under their feet, that's the other B, and turn and tear you in pieces. So the two A's go together and the two B lines go together in a chiastic structure. Thus, dogs may turn and tear you in pieces and swine may trample your pearls under their feet. Now, these swine probably could also tear you in pieces. <laughs> and dogs could certainly trample pearls under their feet. Uh, so either way you take it, you're going to come out with a violent reaction. That's not good. But I think that that's the gist of what Jesus is getting at with this chiastic structure. So the first metaphorical expression then is, do not give what is holy to dogs, lest they turn and tear you in pieces. Those are the lines that seem to go together here. Now, as already noted, Jesus has in mind the wild dogs that were present in Palestine in the first century. These aren't cute little puppy dogs, right? Uh, but he does not specify what he means by referring to what is holy. But given the immediately preceding context, I think we have to conclude that our Lord is illustrating a possible reaction that we may receive when we share the truth of God's word when confronting sin in a brother. We talked about this last week. When we, when we make moral judgments about others, they're really not our own judgments, but the judgments of God's word that we're sharing. We're saying something is sinful because God in his word says it's sinful or wrong, right? And so when Jesus speaks of what is holy, the, he's presupposing that when you're sharing with other people what is most valuable, it's the word of God that you're sharing. It's the truth of God's word that you're sharing with them. And that's what's being rejected when you share. And this is true whether it's the truth shared with a professing brother in Christ or the truth of the gospel shared with an unbeliever. So Jesus is warning us that there are some people who will be like dogs and who will viciously attack us when we seek to share the truth with them. And in such a case, it's pointless then to try to continue to share the truth with them. The second metaphorical expression is very similar Jesus says, do not cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet. Pearls were one of the most valuable things a person could possess in the ancient world. Jesus even told a parable about a pearl of great price for that reason. And they're still valuable today. Can you imagine someone taking some valuable pearls and thinking that swine might appreciate their beauty? 
the, the very thought is ludicrous. It's ridiculous. And, and that, that's the point that Jesus is trying to make. He's saying that some people may have absolutely no appreciation of the truth that we share with them. They'll appreciate the truth about like a pig will appreciate a pearl. Again, it's pointless to try to continue to share the truth with such people. So we've gotten an idea here as to what Jesus means by the metaphors of dogs and swine. But how is it that Jesus went from talking about humbly confronting sin in a brother to talking about such hardened types of people as are represented by these dogs and pigs? I'm going to try to answer this question as we proceed to the application of this principle based on the overall context. And I hope to help us grasp Jesus' train of thought in the process, at least as I understand it from the context. As we've seen in our previous reading of the passage, Jesus is speaking in the immediate context, first of all, about confronting sin in a brother. That's what is represented by this speck in your brother's eye. He's talking about the context of making judgments, and these must be moral judgments about something wrong, right, that you need to confront. And he refers to this person as a brother at least three times. Uh, beginning in verse 3, he says, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Each time he has a brother in mind here. But what if everyone who professes to be a brother isn't truly a brother? And what if their response demonstrates this? What if they respond by reacting like the metaphorical dogs and swine Jesus immediately goes on to describe? Such appears to be Jesus' thinking. After all, he has repeatedly addressed those he refers to as hypocrites in this passage, so he clearly does not think that everyone to whom he speaks the truth is necessarily who or what he claims to be. And I think this is presupposed here. That as you're sharing the truth with people, even people who profess to be brothers, sometimes they'll turn out not to be. Sometimes they'll turn out to be hypocrites. False professors of faith. And I think that'll become even more clear as we consider our next main point, which is the application of the principle here to professing believers. As we've just seen, Jesus seems to anticipate in verse 6 that confronting sin in a brother will not always go well. Even if it's done in the right way. Humbly. Dependence upon the Spirit. With grace. And love. Even if we do it everything the right way. It still might not go well. There may be times that they will respond quite negatively to our attempts to offer correction based upon God's word. And it is important to recognize that this may sometimes reveal that the one who has professed to be a brother in Christ may not actually be a brother at all. 
In fact, our Lord Jesus will refer to such false professors of faith later in the same context. If you move down to verse 15, he speaks this way, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Now, Jesus is the shepherd. He refers to believers as sheep frequently. So what's this false prophet doing? Trying to look like a true believer. But he's not. Because he says, but inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. They're unbelievers pretending to be believers. And they might be even self-deceived. As he goes on to, to say, even later in the passage, when he utters one of the most frightening teachings in all of Scripture. This is, if you want to think of the most frightening passages in the Bible, this is one of them. It's high up there. And that's in verses 22 to 23, where these people might even think they're believers and not be. It's not just that they're, sometimes they're, they know they're not and they're just trying to deceive people. Other times they're self-deceived and trying to deceive people, trying to include people in their own self-deception. These are the kind of people in mind in verses 21 to 23 when Jesus looks forward to the judgment day and says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Remember, he's spoken of false prophets already. So he's hearkening back to that, at least in part. Have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And Jesus doesn't bother to say whether these are genuine wonders or genuine exorcisms or not. He just says this, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Now notice he doesn't say you were a true believer who followed white. No, no, no. He says, I never knew you. Not I knew you for a while and then stopped knowing. I never knew you. They were always fake. They were never real believers. And then he says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And Jesus calls these false professors of faith ravenous wolves. But we could also figuratively call them dogs or pigs. As we see in verse 6, they may call themselves our brothers and even appear to be so for a time, but they're not truly our brothers in Christ. And this is why it's important for the pastors of the church. You know, we, we hope we do a good job of shepherding the flock especially when we're healthy. We hope we do a good job of shepherding the flock, but one of our jobs is also to chase away wolves. Jesus is protecting the sheep from wolves here. And by the way, we all have a part to play in that, <laughs> not just the pastors. However, when approaching a, a professing brother caught in a sin, we have to be careful not to be too quick to conclude that he's not a true believer. Having Falling into sin does not automatically mean you're not a true believer. If that, were, if that were the case, none of us are true believers, right? And neither were just about anybody we ever read about in the Bible. Well, the only person we ever read about in the Bible that doesn't sin is Jesus. But, so we can't jump to the conclusion right away. But look what Jesus goes on to teach in Matthew 18 when he talks about discipline in the body. And I think Matthew 7, 6 is a kind of a church discipline verse, actually. But 
He says this later in Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, that is, if he doesn't act like a dog or a pig, <laughs> right? if he hears you, if you haven't cast your pearls before swine, keeping in mind what he's taught in Matthew 7, 6, you've gained your brother. Well, what's this mean if he hears you? He obviously owns the fact that he sinned and repents. That's what this hearing would entail, right? But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector, which is a way of saying treat him like an unbeliever because that's what he's acting like. In other words, through a person's lack of repentance, he or she acts as though they are not a true believer, and we are therefore told to treat them accordingly after we follow these steps. And notice here, the only sin that gets this kind of discipline, there's only one sin, lack of repentance, unrepentance. If they repent, you've gained your brother. Hallelujah. This is, church discipline has worked because it's about restoration. Not condemnation, not casting out, but restoration. Helping this brother or sister. But if they refuse to listen, he says, and they act, and they're unrepentant, and they're acting like unbelievers, well, then he says you treat them like unbelievers, like you would treat a tax collector or a heathen. There are some people who have demonstrated through their actions that they refuse to listen to the truth. They refuse to receive what is holy. As Jesus put it in Matthew 7, 6. And there comes a point at which we cease to cast our pearls before swine. All they will do is react badly and perhaps even lash out at, against us. And as I said, in this regard, Matthew 7, 6 is sort of a church discipline verse. And Matthew 18 might be a further expounding on it in a way. It's also very close to the teaching in Proverbs 9, 8, which says this, Do not correct a scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Apparently, our sister... Dorothy thought she was writing a letter to scoffers, not wise men. So maybe she was right to write that letter. Notice here that one of the best tests as to whether or not we are genuine believers is how we respond to correction. Those who do not respond with humility and repentance when given ample opportunity are to be treated as unbelievers. So how about us? How well do we respond to correction from God's word? Perhaps some of us are pigs or, you know, or dogs on one day and not on the next. Perhaps, it, perhaps in the morning we wake up a pig and by noon we're not anymore, <laughs> figuratively speaking. Uh, you know, we can have moments when we're not listening very well, but that doesn't mean it's characteristic of us all the time, right? 
what we're dealing with here when we're talking about not casting your pearls before swine are people are characterized by this rejection of the truth, right? We all have moments in our lives when we're not listening to God like we should be. But is that characteristic of us? That's the question. Well, no. I know you guys. That's not, that's not characteristic of any of you. <laughs> there are not dogs and pigs in this room, figuratively speaking. Right? And I'm thankful to God for that. But then... We all know what we need to do. Continually trust the Lord to give us truly repentant hearts so that we won't ever become hardened the way these figurative dogs and pigs are hardened to the truth. Even, even some Christians, even if they professed faith in Christ, turn out to be such people. The Apostle Paul no doubt had such people in mind when he wrote the following command to Titus in Titus 3, 10 and 11. He said, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. In the midst of his teaching ministry, Titus was going to run into people that were super divisive. All they wanted to do was cause problems and cause divisions. Try to correct them a couple of times, but reject them after that. Now, there's, there's been times in the history of our church where we've had to do that, where we've had people come into the congregation and they have some pet doctrine that we don't agree with that they try to subtly push all the time. And I try to say something to them, and then I try to say something to him again, and we had one fellow years ago who had a particular doctrine that he wanted to push, I won't get into what the doctrine was now, and he kept bringing it up in Sunday school in subtle ways, and I would pull him aside afterwards and say, I don't know if most people in the room know what you're trying to do, but I know what you're trying to do, and you need to stop it. If, if you can't stop it, you can't be here. And if you do it again, I'm going to bring it up in front of the whole group, point out what you're doing, and confront you in front of the group about it. And he did it again, and I confronted him from the whole Sunday school class, and I explained why he was saying what he was saying, what he was trying to do. And everybody in the room, when they heard me explain it, some of them already picked up on it. The rest of them said, yeah, he is doing that. And he said, you got to stop this. And I rebuked him. He never came back. Well, I was trying to do what Paul said here. We reject that divisive man, right? Now, we don't do it because we're trying to be mean. I spent a lot of time talking to this guy outside of that class, other than just confronting what he was doing, a lot of time, right? Trying to convince him, trying to show him the truth. At some point, we don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. This isn't the place for you. And it's not because we don't love you. It's because you don't love the truth and we do. And all you want to do is react negatively to it. And we won't have that here. That's not what we're about, sitting around despising the truth together. We don't do that here. You want to do that, do it somewhere else. That's what he did. It's sad when that happens. But sometimes that has to happen. The Apostle Peter also ran into such people in his ministry. Listen to his description of some of them in 2 Peter 2, verses 20 to 22. He says, for if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge 
of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. What is holy? The teaching of God. And then he says, but it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Back to dogs and pigs (laughs) analogies here. So we, we will find that not all who profess to be brothers in the Lord will receive correction and that this may be the clearest indication of their true nature. But then there are those who are open unbelievers and who make no profession of faith at all. What we have to share with them that is so holy and valuable is the truth of the gospel, how they can be saved. But there will be those among them who will refuse to hear the truth of the gospel as well. And they may even persecute us for it, as our Lord Jesus already warned us earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in verses 10 to 11 of chapter 5, when he said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. That's figurative dog and pig behavior. Turning and tearing us in pieces behavior. Trampling underfoot the gospel message behavior. With this in mind, we're ready to turn to our third and final point, which is the application of the principle to unbelievers. Overt unbelievers would also fit the description of the dogs or pigs to which Jesus refers as Paul's description of the Judaizers in his epistle to the Philippians demonstrates. These people taught work salvation, not salvation by grace through faith. And Paul said of them in Philippians 3, 2, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. So he picks up this imagery of dogs again when he refers to them. Um, So we have, sometimes Jesus could refer to these people as dogs or swine. Other times he called them a brood of vipers, like a nest of snakes. We get the point, don't we? Jesus is giving us a principle that applies when sharing the gospel and encountering an obstinate and sometimes very hostile response. He is saying not to continue sharing with such people, only to have them treat what is holy with such disrespect. And again, we don't do this right away. People are given opportunities. But there are people in my life that I've quit talking to, that I've witnessed to for a long time, and said, okay, well, there's no need for us to talk anymore. If you ever are open to hearing what I have to say, let me know. Because I, I, oh, and I'll continue to pray for you. I've had situations like that. They've been few and far between. I don't jump to this conclusion quickly usually. I'm pretty stubborn that way in in presenting the truth, and I think we should be, as we see Jesus was with the Pharisees. But Jesus would later emphasize or demonstrate the application of this principle on other occasions. For example, in Matthew 10, verses 14 and 15, he said this, And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet, 
Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And why would that be? Well, Sodom and Gomorrah had the witness of Lot, whose righteous soul, Peter tells us, was vexed day and night by the things that he saw. And if you go back and read the account, what they said to him, this man is always judging us. Lot was speaking out. And they rejected him. But Jesus says, "Why it'll be worse for these cities because they, they've come with the truth of the Messiah. And, and they've rejected that. A much greater witness than Lot has come. And too much is given, much is required. They're going to be held accountable. In Matthew 15, beginning of verse 4, he says this, Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. So he's basically saying, don't have anything to do with them. They, they had, what had they done? They'd proven to be swine, dogs. Jesus said, you're done with them, right? The apostles would also follow this principle in their ministry. Paul's a good example of this. For example, Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch of Pisidia, and we read in Acts 13, beginning in verse 49, just so you can see how this principle is woven throughout the New Testament. Beginning in Acts 13, verse 49, we read this, And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region, but the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them. They did what Jesus said to do as a sign against them of judgment. And they went to Iconium instead. Later on at Corinth, we read in Acts 18, verses 5 and 6, that when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments, which is a sign of mourning, right? And said to them, your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He quit talking to those Jews who were blaspheming. He was practicing, I would argue, the principle of Matthew 7, 6 when he did that. Notice a common thread in each of the examples we've examined of this principle in action. Jesus and his followers never concluded that people fit the dogs or swine category until they had first tried to share the word with them. I think Philip Way is helpful when he writes this. Now today, we must admit that we do not cross the line very often as far as offering holy things to dogs. 
Actually, we're so timid and so infrequent at sharing the truth that I believe we're in no danger of violating this verse. We must be sharing and witnessing if we're to know when enough is enough. We can't even for a moment think that we should share a God, uh, that we should share a God bless you once and think that we have been a witness and that to press things any further would violate this principle. <laughs> no, in order to understand this principle, we must be doing what he says. We must be obedient to witness before we can judge when to stop. I agree with that assessment. We must never then attempt to use this verse as an excuse not to share the gospel when we should. That wasn't Jesus' intent. Or not to correct a brother when we should. That wasn't his intent. This verse, after all, applies to situations in which we've already sincerely attempted to share the truth in the first place. So then, getting back to the example of Dorothy Sayers with which I began this teaching, was she right to act the way she did to write that letter, do you think? Well, I guess the answer is only if she had previously attempted to share the truth and encountered dogs and pigs. I'm assuming she did. As I read that letter, it seemed to me uh, someone who was sick and tired of these people <laughs> uh, and their refusal to listen. That they'd already abundantly demonstrated that to her. And so she wrote what she wrote. So she was right only if she had previously tried to share with them, or perhaps if she was certain that others had constantly done this and had been refused a hearing then she could as well. So if, if I know that one of you has tried re over and over and over again to correct someone and they refuse to listen or to share the gospel and they refuse to listen, I might be justified in saying, well, I'm not going to bother then either, <laughs> right? It depends on the situation, I suppose, but we have to be sure of that. As for us, we need to recognize that we're all called as Christians to care enough brought our brothers and sisters in the Lord to humbly, with grace and love, confront them when we see them caught in a sin. And we're called to love those around us who do not know Christ enough to share the gospel with them, even if they're our enemies, and very often even if they mistreat us. Sometimes we're going to encounter repentance and faith through the Spirit's work in their hearts, as Jesus did with his disciples. And sometimes we will encounter opposition and hostility, as Jesus did with so many of the scribes and Pharisees. And sometimes we'll encounter that opposition and hostility, sometimes even from those who profess faith in Christ. And they'll turn out not to be true believers at all. And that's always a sad thing. should ever take joy in it. May God give us all the wisdom and the courage to be faithful to our calling, to communicate the truth, and the wisdom and the courage to know when to apply this principle. 
And I think we should err until we feel we've learned the wisdom to know when to apply it. We should err on the side of not applying it. Probably. Because we're always going to be too quick not to share when there's opposition, probably. We shouldn't give ourselves an easy out. But there are going to be times when we're right to say, no more, no more. I'm done with you. I'm figuratively speaking, shaking the dust off my shoes and moving on. I did this with a man some years ago who taught in a local college and professed to be a believer, had a degree in theology. And I went out of my way to help him and and minister to him for well over a year. And I won't get into all the details of how much of my time and money I spent trying to help this man. But it was clear to me that he was not open to the truth of God's word. One day, standing in my driveway, railing against God as he was wont to do because of how God was unfair to him, and he was one day going to stand in front of God and and, uh, demand an accounting from God for how unfair he's been to him, all the while professing to be a believer. I pointed out to him some things that Paul said about his attitude in in Romans, chapter 9 in particular. And uh, he said, well, I think Paul was wrong. And he said, you probably think that's pretty arrogant. And I said, his name, that I won't say here. I said, uh, what I think is that it is not humanly possible to be more arrogant than you're being right now. And you and I are through. And I gave him a ride home. I never talked to him again. He saw me one day where he worked in a local place and waved to me, and I just went right on by. And I made clear to him, I am through with you. You are a fake, and we're done. I'm not going to try to share with you anymore. You don't want to hear anything that I have to say. You want to argue constantly. And I'm done with you. So I think I properly applied Matthew 7, 6 in that occasion. But I spent an awful lot of time first trying to reach this guy. And I hope, he, I, I hope he was finally humbled and surrendered to the Lord. I really do. It grieves me that he's on his way to hell if he hasn't surrendered. So that's one example in my life where I felt I had to do this. And I probably should have done it sooner, truth be told. But I err on the side of patience because I know I'm by nature an impatient person. And so I should always err on the side of patience. And by the way, for any young men who are thinking of pastoral ministry, patience, patience, patience is what you're going to need. And I, I try to err on the side of patience. And sometimes that gets me in trouble. I probably should have done that with that guy six months sooner. But that's just one example. I've I've tried to live this. I really have. And I know you have too. Let's pray for wisdom now.
We need God, don't we? Holy Father, we're talking about something very hard to do this morning. Our Lord Jesus is such a good example to us in the Gospels of always knowing and having the wisdom to know exactly what to say. In every single situation, to know exactly when to share and when not to share. And we're trying so hard to learn from him how we should behave in a wicked, a crooked generation, much like the one he was witnessing to. And we fail so often. We want to do right, Lord. We want to share the truth faithfully. And we, we want to know when to not share because we don't want to see people blaspheme what is holy constantly and to no purpose at all. And we need the power of your spirit to know this. Give us wisdom, we pray, and forgive us for the failures in our lives when we maybe jump too quickly to this response and other times maybe when we didn't respond this way soon enough. We're trying so hard to learn to be like Jesus and we're, we're so bad at it, but we want to be better. So help us, I pray. Teach us the wisdom of our master, we pray. Conform us to his image, we pray. And do what it takes in our lives for that to happen, we pray. We ask all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.